This is the Death Dialogues Project Podcast. I'm your host, Becky Odd Jennison. Welcome. I am thrilled to welcome Jane Edberg today. Jane's dear son, Nanda, was killed suddenly 20 years ago. Jane brings a very unique view to this conversation. As we walk alongside her, as she describes the enormity of initial finding out about his death and the first five years of intense grief, and how throughout the 20 years since then, her grief has morphed and developed and what her processing has been. A little about Jane, she's a published writer working in poetry, flash nonfiction and memoir. She holds a Master of Fine Arts in Studio Arts. She is a retired art professor who taught art appreciation, photography and design. And Jane is currently working on a hybrid memoir of images and prose called The Fine Art of Grieving about how she used art to process the grief and heal from the loss of her son. She has a blog and she has Facebook and Instagram pages and you can find those in our program description. Help me welcome Jane and thanks for listening. Hello, Jane. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode today. Hello, I'm really glad to be here. Lovely. So, Jane, I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind just telling our listeners where you're at in the world. And I'd love it if you would just jump right into your story and um, share what you'd like to share with us today. Okay, sounds good. I'm in uh, California in the United States, and I live right on the coast. Beautiful view of the ocean from not too far from my house. And um, the story is um it's kind of a long one now because it's been 21 years Mm. (laughs) yeah and um what happened was um i had just moved and left my sons and davis they were 19 and 21 um arian and nanda and nanda is the son that i lost and um, they had a home and girlfriends and jobs and and they were kind of you know doing their adulting thing that you're supposed to do at that age And uh, my daughter, who was 16, and my husband and I and our dogs and cats moved out to the coast because we both got career jobs teaching. Mm -hmm. And um, within a couple of months of having moved, and I was like in a state, too. I was in a I was would say I was even maybe even in a suicidal state, which was not unusual for me because I had a lot of um, post-traumatic stress disorder or cumulative Mm -hmm. from my childhood. And I was already pretty down and I wasn't around my therapist. I, I didn't have my bearings. And the job that I just got was uh, kind of turned out to be kind of horrendous and very difficult. And the, the people were difficult. And it was just the wrong fit for me. But that, you know, there I was with this great income and, you know, newly. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everything to be grateful for, right? Absolutely, (laughs) right. And so I thought I'm going to make the best of this, but I was feeling really down, Mm. and um, and and kind of going into that weird, you know, suicidal ideology kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then I got the phone call, and it was a woman that I knew who I ordinarily ordinarily doesn't call me. Um, She's sort of like a um, just someone I knew in Davis, but not, not you know close friend or anything. And I was mm-hmm. like, why the heck is she calling me? And then she told me to sit down and mm-hmm. I did the opposite. I stood <clears> up and um, she told me that she thought that my son had been killed on the railroad track. And um, so I just went into a full panic and started calling around and uh, got the coroner on the phone because I had called the police department. And um, she identified him right on the spot that he has a tattoo on his uh, shoulder very specific and uh he confirmed it and then that was the tailspin that I went into I just I could you know it was like um the life just kind of snaps in half and you have the life that you had before and then you have this new life that is like seemingly spinning away from you and it's like 
uh, this unraveling of um, even who I was. I, I couldn't even understand anything at the moment and didn't even truly believe it. I kept thinking, well, I'll go to Davis, I'll drive to Davis and it'll all be, it'll be somebody else. You know, it's that typical um, denial, like this couldn't possibly be true. And, um, and when I called my son, he had already seen him because uh, my son, Arian, who's my, his older brother, I'd called him and he said, well, I was just out on the tracks and I just saw him and they were putting him in a body bag. And I thought, oh, my God, Ooh. what a thing to see. And I told him, just stay put. I'm coming. And um, I don't it's sort of like, you know, how it's sort of a fog getting all your things together to, you know, sort out where to go and what to do. And we just uh, made some phone calls. It was interesting because one of the phone calls that I made was to my boss, of course, to tell him I wouldn't be coming in. And I'd be in on Friday. It was Wednesday. And I told him, oh, I'll be in on Friday. This is how crazy it is, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. And he said to me, you know, look, uh, you just leave it to me. I'll sort it out. And he was really great because he, they give you five days of bereavement. And he sorted it out so I could have other types of days and leave. And people donated their time for me to take time off. And um, so school was almost out. So they gave me, you know, two or three weeks. Um, and then it was spring break, which, or sorry, um, well, I was moving into the spring semester. So it was winter break. And that was great because that was another five weeks. So I didn't mm. have to go to work for a while. That was a blessing. Mm -hmm. But it was, yeah, it's just interesting that my mind said, I was like, oh, I can't disappoint my students. You know, it's like, what? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. So, um, yeah. And then we drove down and went to my brother-in-law's house and stayed there. He lives in Davis and um, met with my son and uh, kind of stayed up all night, kind of in this daze until I could meet with the coroner and, uh, you know, really get the facts and kind of really solidify, oh, this is, this is for real. You know, this isn't, isn't going away. Yeah. Oh, how horrible. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I'll, I'll explain <sighs> a little bit too. It's um, like, how did he get out on the railroad tracks? You know, he, um, when in Davis, the, the railroad tracks separate the south and north of Davis. And there are two overpasses that one could take, but they were miles apart from each other. And he mm -hmm. happened to be sort of in between them. So in order to get home, he'd have to walk all the way to the, like a mile to an overpass, then all a mile back when he could just go through these buildings, cross over the tracks and get to the other side and he'd be home in five minutes. So all, everybody was crossing those tracks. They've been fenced off since, but, um, he went to a friend's house before that after work and uh, they were drinking. So he ended up not having his wits about him when he was crossing those railroad tracks. And when the train was coming, he didn't even hear it. Um, there, mm. there was a girl with him and she was screaming her head off and he was like, what, you know, and um, you had like four sets of tracks to get across. So it was, and there's a lot of crossing that the trains do. And it was a freight train coming at about 65 miles an hour and mm -hmm. um, yeah, stay off those tracks folks. Cause that's, they're very quiet apparently. Mm. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. And I thought about that a lot though, and about how horrible the way people die and, mm -hmm. and it's, it, you know, the, the bot, the end result is that they're gone, you know? And, right. Um, so it's, you know, my son even, or my husband had said to me, you know, he could have stepped off a curb and been hit by a bus or, you know, right. had an aneurysm or, you know, what it's, it's not going to, and so he was drinking, you know, you know, he wasn't driving, he could have been driving. So there were all these things, right. And I guess one of the things that I did for like weeks and weeks was the inventory of what could I have done about it? How could it have been better for him so that it didn't happen? Maybe I should address the drinking more. All those things, you know, millions of scenarios. And then you finally get exhausted and go, you know, it's just what it is. It's that's the story. And that's how it happened. Mm. 
Yeah, that's the way our human brains go, mm-hmm. isn't it? Just mm-hmm. to try to somehow, the, I, I, you know, I, the words magical thinking keep coming up for me, you know, yeah. that way, if I, if I would have done something, or if I do something, you know, like you were saying, mm-hmm. even driving there, like somehow it could be undone. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's just a big mistake somehow. Mm. I think I did that a lot in the beginning, um, especially around uh, sometimes I'd be in a kind of weird dream quality state, that very numb, kind of fuzzy, you haven't quite come to yet. That first year is just so horrendous. Um, I remember thinking like, oh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I need to make a phone call and just see if he'll answer the phone. You know. <laughs> mm. I remember doing that a few times or having a dream and, and seeing him in the dream and thinking, Oh, well, there, there you are, you know, it's, and then waking up and going, Nope, <laughs> you know, and over and over again, you know, so that a tweaker right. of uh, making that reality really sink in is, is takes a lot. And, you know, death is so um, extraordinarily uh, uh, strange and, uh, when it happens, it's it, there's no way to explain, like, where does that person go? Um, you can see the body and you know that they don't inhabit the body. But there's that that thing that they were, you know, the substance and the, the essence of who they were. It's like, where is that? Um, I think especially in a in a sudden death like that, you know, it, and just I'm thinking of myself. My father died very suddenly, um, relatively suddenly compared to my mom and my brother. And, you know, there's a difference when you can see the spirits waning, yeah. you know, yeah. or are going in and out. But that was my first experience of death, the more sudden situation. Mm-hmm. And there was definitely a feeling of, okay, that energy is somewhere, you know, yeah. it doesn't. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it, yeah, that really was informative for me. Like, yeah, um, I, I, I'm all about the great mystery. We don't know where it goes. But yeah. There, yeah. That energy somewhere here. I totally agree with you. And um, I believe in times I've come close to touching it. And, um, you know, I've spoken to many people on the subject, um, Native American shamans, um, people who are in the Hindu belief, um, you know, lots of folks that have varying uh, belief systems around uh, the soul and where it goes or the spirit. And um, I, yeah, I, I feel like I'm, I'm not a non-believer. I just don't know where that is. And I've certainly had some remarkable experiences where I could say to myself, well, that was not a psychotic break or a dream. That was something real that isn't always experienced, but it certainly was different than a real live waking state. It was something else that I don't know what the name of it is, but I came. Can you give us an example? Yeah, I, I had a dream um, and I knew I was in the dream. And I was with Nanda in a house that he was building for me and everything was white. He was wearing white. The place was white. Everything was really white and lots of light. And while I was in there, I I acknowledged that I was in a dream state. I could even feel myself on my bed dreaming. I was sort of half between awake and asleep. And then then I was awake, but I woke up in the dream and I touched him. And in that moment, I said to him, I can feel you and I can see this fabric and I'm right here with you right now. And he, he wasn't surprised or perturbed. He's like, sure, that's fine, you know. And um, it didn't last very long. And then I went back into more of a dream state. And when I came out of it, I knew that I had been in a dream, but had been somehow moved into this other reality that was separate from dream or wake state. Mm-hmm. And it was very real. It was, and I and I'm very attuned to my psychology, my you know different levels of consciousness. I studied it. I took some classes at the UC Davis with Charles Tart, who studied um, consciousness and dream states and stuff. So I've got a lot of background in studying that. And that was something I had never experienced before. It was very, very different and very 
very much like being in the real world, but I knew it wasn't in the real world because I was with my son. So that was strange. Well, I have to say, you know, with my exploration, that comes up over and over again, yeah. is that, you know, and, and most of us don't remember that state, if that is, in fact, what happens. But the idea that the other side or whatever we want to call it, that that during dream states, during sleep, that we do there go there sometimes. Yeah. And that's just what comes up for me when you're saying that. It's like, oh, okay, so that's what they're talking about yeah. when, you know, and yeah. And I, I just recently, in fact, the just published um, episode was a spiritual medium. And, you know, I've had also, I, went, I wasn't talking about myself at all, but, you know, th this whole dream idea. And yeah. I've had some of those very vivid. And I hear that a lot from people where, you know, oh, I could feel the touch. And, you know, as you're describing, it was just so very real. Yeah. And, and she says, you know, those are visitations. Yeah. That is a visitation when it's that palpable versus a dream. Like, cause it was, I think that was my question. Like, how can you tell when it's just a dream yeah. of somebody or if it's something else? Yeah. So it was very cool. Well, that's a profound one. Yeah. It's it was very clear. beautiful. It was clear to me. Um, and, and, Basically, I think because I have that um, hyper-defined sensitivity mm. to understanding different states that I've been in. I've had, I've tried drugs. I've tried, you know, psychedelics. I've meditated. I've played with dream states, and you know, I've done a lot of all kinds of uh, practices and so forth. This was a whole other, <laughs> a whole other category. Wow. And it was, yeah, wow. it was really profound, and I'll never forget it because it actually comforted me to mm -hmm. know that in some way he was okay. And, you know, someone might say, well, that's just your psychological part trying to take care of something. But it, you know, it, I, I don't really care to be a detective necessarily. I just know what I experienced and it helped and it was, it was beautiful. Yeah. 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 You know what you felt. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of, <laughs> thinking of you describing that time of your life and that you were having some suicidal ideation beforehand, where do you go? Where, tell us yeah, about where, do you go? Um, where did you go with after? I think what happened is because I was, I was also studying young. And so uh, visiting, so I had suicidal ideation, but at the same time, I'd been doing a lot of work before Nanda died on looking at that in a way through art, through writing, through different readings, through different cultures, trying to understand what our shadow and dark side and our suffering and our longing and the things we fear, all that stuff. It's actually a wellspring of knowledge that helps us look at life. And I was getting that before Nanda died. So I'd already kind of was exploring that notion, even though I had that ideation. I, I, um, I was allowing myself just to look at it rather than act on it, of course. Mm -hmm. And um, when Nanda died, uh, it made me fearless in some respects because I, I, it's very hard to explain I had wanted to die so much and then he died and then I didn't want to die because I wanted to understand about why he died. It was very complicated. Um, and so it, I think it was a sort of driving force to understand what we're doing in this world. Why are we, why do we die? Why, why are we faced with um, hardship or suffering? Why, all those things. So um, I set out to explore this grief because it was like the most intense thing I'd ever felt in my life. It just was like de self-devastating. It, it, it literally destroyed the self I had. So then the suicidal ideation changed to I wanted to die, but for a different reason, not because of me and my life. And all, that was gone. I had this new life without my son, which was um, even more devastating. But on some level, it made me also incredibly curious, like, what is going on here? 
Why is this? Why did this happen? Why is this happening? So that sounds really funny, but it's because it's like at there's one extreme end. I've become curious and alive and wanting to pursue what this is about. And on the other side, I'm like, let me out of here. I just, you know, put me on the railroad tracks, run me over with the train. And I had that full spectrum. And Mm -hmm. but I knew that I had that full spectrum. And that's where I started to kind of operate from. Um, The first year, however, was, um, you know, dipping down into that darkest um, chasm of loss. And um, yeah, so I don't know if that any of that made sense, hopefully. (laughs) You know, it it did. And, And for someone who, you know, as a practitioner, I, I worked with people with who had ever attempted suicide or really very, very suicidal. And what I, it really strikes me about what you're saying is I'm just visualizing that you've in that space, there's a bit of a miracle that you're able to look at that suicidal ideation, those thoughts and feelings as kind of a barometer and not as this is who I am. Yeah, you know, yeah. it, it sounds like you were able to, okay, yeah. that's my emotional regulation gauge over there. I get that I'm in that range, but I've got this to tend to over here. Exactly. The, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It was like two lives, you know, like the selfish, not that I don't think suicidal ideation is selfish, but it was more self-involved. I'll, I'll put yeah. it that way. Whereas Nanda's death became, I didn't even have a self. I was like, all of a sudden I didn't have a self and it like, you're white. You're just wiped. Yeah. It was clean. like a clean slate. And it was later, many, many years later, I, uh, I began to see that as a gift mm. because not only did it open up the possibility for me to explore even deeper the realms of that darker side, but mm. it also gave me a place to build from and be able to look at both worlds, the world of my terrible childhood, woe is me kind of world, and mm-hmm. the and the suicidal ideation attached to that. And with my new world, where I've lost my son, it's like, how could things get worse? Let me show you, <laughs> you know? Mm. Yeah, and so mm-hmm. then um, those, they were two, like, really like two very different problems side by side and eventually they kind of crossed over and in healing my grief around Nanda I ultimately healed my grief around my childhood so I came out the end feeling whole new um, and intact Um, I have my moments but I'm actually for the most part um, pretty well adjusted and mm-hmm. the most adjusted I've ever been in my entire lives. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? Well, yeah. So the, an abusive, horribly abusive childhood can feel like the worst thing that could ever happen. Right. Until the worst thing that could ever happen happens. That's it. Yeah. And one, and then, and one yeah. could either wipe out, you know, and completely. I could have, yeah. I could have killed myself because it was just the tipping you know brink or whatever but it did the opposite it kept me in the game it kept me um and the best I can describe that is that I felt like I'd been given some kind of chance to see something bigger than me Mm. it was like an opportunity to really discover something even Mm -hmm. though it was horribly painful and it was true Mm. it's so that might have been an intuition. I don't know, but it, um, yeah. So, I you know I think these conversations are important for for many reasons, and one reason is these are life journeys that we may face ourselves one day in one way or another, or somebody close to us. And, you know, I'm not forgetting that back there in the background there, you still have your husband and two children. Yeah. Tell us about how that worked for you. You know, how after such a traumatic, you know, sudden loss of a child, how, 
how what was your um, interactions with your family you know because be, we're, yeah. we're the mothers yeah. we're supposed to keep it together for everybody else yeah aren't we? yes and um and I didn't I yeah. um I was on a soul mission and it was very difficult to recognize anybody else's suffering mm. um my husband I think lost me in the process we're still together but in during that time that especially that first year even second year um i wasn't too available and um i i wasn't reliable either in terms of um anything that used to you know how things used to be weren't anymore and um an example of that might be just my daily getting through the daily thing you know like I just was struggling so hard that I would take care of me first and everybody was kind of left to take care of themselves. And that wasn't so great for my daughter who was 16 years old at the time. And in fact, she seemed so capable and I did pull her out of school and she came, I put her into college early so that Mm -hmm. she could actually be with me because I wanted to keep my eye on her. But I did, I wasn't, um, emotionally available but I could be protective physically Uh, but that wasn't enough for her she told me later how she had lost her brother and how she had lost her father because he was incapacitated emotionally how she had lost me because I couldn't um, I couldn't check in with her emotionally and um, it was just a a terrible thing. I didn't even know it was happening until much later. She was much older when she told me, like in her 30s. Mm-hmm. So, you know, thir- t- 16 years later, she's telling me, um, oh, by the way, <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. You know, I one, I didn't know and I couldn't tell. And I was so self-absorbed in the in the just the managing the pain of the grief that I couldn't possibly have an I felt like life was coming through this little tiny straw and that I could only suck on it so hard to get enough substance to get me through the day that if I had to deal with anything else. So I was also teaching and I was just going, I would like be on autopilot. <laughs> it was awful. It was, you know, it was mm. destructive and it's destruct. Grief is destru- destructive um, in that especially when in a family, you know, a close loved one dies, everyone gets hit hard and they get hard, hit hard multiply because they don't just lose the loved one. They use the, lose the life they had. They lose the routines. They lose, you know, being able to rely on certain individuals for their well-being. The whole thing is a calamity. And uh, it took some, took some sorting out and, uh, yeah, I think for a long time, um, for a long time, maybe I think the first five years were sort of critical, really critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you all um, talk openly together about Nanda throughout those five years? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, we did. Yeah, that is one thing that we did do because I, I really didn't like skirting. I've never been a person to skirt around issues or... Um, I think what I couldn't do is help anybody through their feelings, which I was like, that was my primary goal as mother is helping everybody sort themselves out and give them lots of, you know, support and space and kind of draw it out of them, all that energy that a mother puts in to nurture and um, hold people up. And, you know, and I, I couldn't do any of it. I, (laughs) I could barely, I mean, I, I couldn't even hold myself up. So it was, it's like a, I with a drown is being a drowning victim and all you can think about is saving your own life and you can't yeah or you're so desperately trying to struggle to breathe that you can't hear or see or do anything else but that and um i think that lasted for a long time you know it slowly i think the first year was like i was just like putting one foot in front of the other and 
doing way like a ro- I'm just imagining like a robot go to the grocery totally. store, yeah. get the groceries. Yeah. yeah. And I would oh delegate, like send my mm. to the store. I, I can't face the store or whatever it is. And I would close myself off in my stu- studio a lot. Um, and then because I had to teach, I had to prepare lessons. So I had to go into this lesson mode and it was just awful. It was, it was such a struggle that I didn't even have time to be suicidal. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I remember thinking, I just want to go out on the railroad tracks and kill myself. And it's like, but I don't have time. I've got to put one foot in front of the other. I've got things to take care of. So it's a, it's a weird, I mean, your thinking at that time or my thinking at that time uh, was really in the drowning victim mode. And then year two was sort of like, like you've managed to surface. But the surfacing is like you just surface to a planet that you don't recognize. And then you have to figure out how to navigate. And it's it's awful. It's so interesting to hear you share this way because, um, you know, we've connected before and I followed your your work. Yeah. And you're. You know, at this point, you give a message of. Um, I want to say redemption, but that's not it of, of a, a growth or a after grief. And, and granted, let's just be, again, tell the audience it's been 20 years, Yeah. but you know, you've been such a, a painting, such a vivid picture of this intense. Tell us how, because I, I know from talking to you that it did begin to lighten. What did that transition look like? And what do you attribute that to, if you wouldn't mind? Yeah, no, it's it's it really interesting to go back and look at my journal entries. And that um, a couple months after Nanda died, I went to a grief group. And uh, the first thing that the counselor said was, you're going to always feel this way. It's just a matter of, you know, getting used to it or whatever. And I thought, I, w- I used an expletive when I thought it, but <laughs> I thought that's not happening. I'm, I am not going to feel like this forever. That's, that didn't even make sense to me that that, you know, that that was the prescription, that this is what it was going to be like for the rest of my life. I just thought no way. And so I made a concerted effort to figure out all the different methods and routines and ways in which I could get myself and uh, to evolve into someone that wasn't going to feel bad from the get-go. So that was like at two months. And, um, and I think with that attitude, there was a certain amount of, I don't even know if resilience is the right term, but it gave me some strength to um, make that not be true. And then I met other people who had grieved for a long time. And indeed, some people weren't grieving anymore. And I thought, okay, so that's not always true for everyone. And and then we'd have to get into like, what is the definition of grief? What is the definition of healing? And so my definition of grief is that horrible, takes you down, painful stuff that comes in waves that is really hard to manage and does take over your life and it's and it can be you know continually devastating every time you're hit by it so i mm-hmm. had that for a period of time and i think it lasted maybe three years but it but through those three years it start that first year forget it it's just hell it's living hell the second year is i thought was worse because i came to and I realized all the other things I was losing. It's like my life was unraveling, but I was conscious and I was watching it. I was able to do something. And then the third year I got a footing. And then by five years, I felt like I have a self that I can now um, build from and build a new world from. And so throughout those five years, it got better and better Um, still with bouts of grief and, you know, especially around, you know, anniversaries, that sort of thing. But up through the years, um, I've had things that have triggered grief in me, like when my father died and, um, 
I lost other, my son became a drug addict, my other son, and I felt like I lost him for a while. So those things were fluctuating in and out and they could trigger the grief and bring it back up. But over time, that was harder and harder to trigger. And I would say now I rarely get triggered and I'm pretty solid and I don't have pain around it. I, I can think about Nanda. I can write about him. I can even write about the hardest parts of losing him. And um, I can go to that place of pain, but I can come out of it. I have control in and out of it. Um, it it's, so I would say that I'm healed, but I have scars. I have some tender tissue still. I, I have moments, especially on his birthday, I get kind of a little quivery inside and think about him and ache, you know, and that sort of thing. But I don't have a day to day. I don't always think about him. Um, I remember it's like in the, in the beginning, it's like, I will remember you forever. Every day is I'm going to think of, you know, you couldn't go a day without thinking about it. And now it's like, I think about him when something comes up, like we go somewhere and I'm like, I think Nanda would have liked this. Or, you know, when my grandbabies were born, I, I felt sad because I know that he would have loved that. So there's those sort of moments, but I definitely would say that I'm a healed person um, on the level of how I'm defining healed, not perfect, but not suffering, not struggling, not, no suicidal ideation. I think you're hitting on a really important point and it's part of my problem just with generic grief work is that that is everyone has their own definition yeah. of grief. Yeah. And that to me is where that type of work needs to start. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, tricky. Yeah. it is, it's not prescriptive. And, and as you just said, how I defined healing, you know, that's, Again, that's going to look different for each of us. Exactly. Yeah. And that's important because a friend of mine, I said, do you believe that you can heal grief? And she goes, why would you? You know, and she's a psychologist. And I'm like, oh, that's an interesting. Why would you? And for me, I wanted to. I didn't want to feel pain anymore. It didn't. I didn't feel like feeling the pain uh, was loving my son necessarily or showing an attribute of that love. I felt like. I could be painless and still know that he's in my heart and I hold him and I still have a relationship with him. Um, but I also respect anybody. I have friends that have lost loved ones and they feel very deeply. They hold on to some of the pain because that is meaningful for them. So it is, I think it is a very personal thing. It's, um, I don't like pain. I've, <laughs> I, I've had so much pain in my life that I feel like I, it's done some damage in my body, like physically and the emotional pain. And so I just didn't want, I wanted to get a, a process that away from my body as much as possible. Um, but you know, it took really feeling it. I had to go into the dark Valley of pain to, mm -hmm. to go through uh, it, and it, I through is such a weird thing too because it sounds so linear and it's sort of not. Um, I had to be able to feel the darkest, deepest, nastiest, paralyzing pain consciously in order to accept what it was connected to and how it would change me and process it, which means making use of it in a way that would. Uh, I wouldn't need it anymore. It's like, it doesn't serve a purpose. And so then it would dissipate. I just sort of evolved some kind of method for myself that literally used it. And I used it in art. I used it in storytelling. I used it in a uh, dance. I used a lot of creativity to move that pain through my body and come out with a, I'll call it a product, like mm -hmm. a drawing, a, an object, and it was removed from my body that way. And I have relics of it um, that I don't have to, I don't have to hold it. It can be taken, you know, taken out of me and that and, and be productive in that it serves um, 
that someone else can look at it or um, engage with it and see what had happened. So yeah, I'm trying to be as clear about that as possible. It's a little hard to explain, but I think that that creativity is what unleashed um, and also, um, I see the word process, but pro- what process is, is engaging it in a way that it informed me about what I could keep from it and what I could let go from it. Um, so the letting go part, although it, I don't know that it's totally let, let go of, it kind of lives its own life now. It's gone. It's, it's, I've set it out on its own orbit. It doesn't have to orbit in me anymore. Yeah, and Jane, I just want to comment that I think I'm not sure if you you understand. Like I, I'm still raw, you know. Yeah, pretty raw, you know. Yeah, raw-ish. It'll be three years in January since my brother died, and then my mother died ten um, yeah. months later. That's super raw. <laughs> well, and that's grief, but you know, and I know everybody out there we don't like we don't compare griefs we don't compare griefs but I'm going to compare grief for just two seconds so bear with (laughs) (laughs) you know I you've lived this this is you this is your life yeah but I I'm coming from an outsider looking and you had a whole other traumatic grief experience you know the idea of a child in a sudden traumatic way. And that's again, where you have to define your, you know, what is your grief? And I would, I would reckon, I would take a guess that part of what you don't define as grief anymore, but it's how your loss sits with you might be what I would call grief. If you get Um, what I'm saying, because, Uh because that trajectory you know, yours started at such an intense level. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think your sharing is profound. I, th- I mean, I, I think this is, you know, I'm, I'm being opened by it and hearing this. And I think for other parents that have lost a child or anybody, you know, your the reasoning and, and the processing, the words you're able to give this. Uh-huh is very, very helpful. I, oh, good. Cause that's re- very important to me. Mm. It's such a, 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 a profound and utterly cutting experience to be losing someone that close. Um, and I, and I don't want to compare because I think that there are people that have had sisters or siblings or, you know, parents that have been as close as possible that, or a person that doesn't have a child yeah. and can't imagine what it would be like to lose a child. Yeah, right. they're right. Right. Yeah. So that so um, I want to steer away from that, but that that devastation from something someone that's so important in your life and has been a part of your life and rooted in you gets gets yanked out. And um, what was I going to say? I guess uh, I guess what I really my bottom line is is that. Um, yeah, so if I describe grief, I'm talking about the process of having to go through and questioning and undulating through all the painfulness of it and all that stuff and feeling um, stress from it and so forth. I don't have that. I, I feel um, a lot of relief and um, I think about Nanda and I just have love left for him. That's there really isn't any residual um, stuff other than the occasional, but I, but I'm so aware of it that it's, it, um, it doesn't grab me. It doesn't control me. It doesn't um, floor me. I just don't have any of that. And, and I didn't want to have any of it. And I was able to accomplish that, but it took a lot of hard work. I, I did so much artwork, so much writing, so much meditation, so much spiritual practice that I've come to a place of accepting what I have with him now completely and totally is it and it's even interesting like if I read something that says if you had five minutes to spend with your loved one you know would you do it or there's all these little funny memes and stuff and it's like no I wouldn't because I'm in a place where 
this is the reality. This is what I work toward. This is who I have. Nanda is who he is right now. I can't change that. I don't want to change it. It just is. It's okay. Mm. And I think your story differs to me from other people, you know, or situations that you hear. Yeah. And, and people I, you know, worked with and maybe myself at times where the way of dealing or processing is actually just to put it in the basement of the mind, you know, just to bury it. And, you know, you got to the, you know, you're the, a, a classic example of what I encourage people, you know, there, it's the difference in how you're going to walk in the world and how you're going to live. Yeah. It relates to how deeply or thoroughly, I guess I should say you process or allow yourself to feel the feelings. Yeah. Um, because, you know, there is a great vast amount of people that can't, you know, won't feel the feelings or can't feel the feelings, but that's going to allow, you know, other things, other feelings, other behaviors to, you know, surface in different yeah. ways. Yeah. And maybe it is addiction or maybe it is um, insomnia or maybe, it, you know, whatever ways, but th- yeah, yeah. Thank you so much I for choose any of those ways. I, I avoid yeah. all that. And, I, I think the bottom line for me, I love that you said, like pl- putting it in the basement. There is no basement for Nanda. Mm. He, he is in the open. He's talked about. He's he's in integrated. Um, he is. I I don't. I I have felt the feelings so deeply that I felt them. They they were felt, and 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 in doing so. I think it's just like, it's like giving birth to a baby. I remember my first baby was like awful. It was like hours and hours of excruciating pain. And my second baby was like 15 minutes. I didn't resist. I was all prepared emotionally and spiritually and physically to allow it. And it happened. And so I'm not saying that will always happen that way, but it wasn't very painful. And, and it, I think of it, so that resistance to going into the deeper, darker places, I understand it because it's not fun but it's absolutely fascinating and I find it curious. And I think anything that like sparks me that way or cracks me open that way, that there's some kind of lesson, there's some kind of beauty to it as well, that it's not just death and darkness and grief, but that there's through going through it, there's this place in which you find yourself going, what an amazing world we live in. What a beautiful like aliveness that I have been given this gift of life. Mm. And you alluded earlier to, you know, after the five years and you didn't use these words, but something to the effect of, and who am I now? Uh Like another rebirth in a way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And And in some ways it's like you crawl until you can stand and then you, you know, toddle until you can walk. And yeah. Oh, this sharing has been so beautiful, Jane. (laughs) Tell us um, in the time we have left as we're winding down a little bit, tell our audience some of, because you've done some amazing things with art Mm -hmm. as a product of, of this work, this inner work. Can you share a little bit about that? I can. And I think that, um, So I've also had to um, come to terms with another word, which is crazy. And often artists are considered a little bit crazy because they do things that are, you know, out of the box as a term or um, not within the ordinary scope of things off the beaten path, you know, like something different. And so one of the ways in which I was able to process some of my grief of Nanda and his loss was um, through this art making. And here's an example. Um, it was about three days after he died. I was brushing my hair and I pulled my hair from my brush and I was going to throw it in the trash and I couldn't. And instead I looked at it and I thought, I'm going to hold on to this because this is telling me something. This is There's something here and I just have an intuitive reaction to holding it and not losing it I can't lose another thread of myself and I rolled it into a little ball and I put it in my drawer 
And one would say, oh, that sounds like some kind of psychosis or something, but it's not because I was aware of it and I understood that, okay, this is weird. This is a little bit different, but I'm going to do it. I did it for five years. All my hair, I rolled into little balls and put them in my drawer. By the end of five years, I had 900 balls of hair. And I took them and I threaded them into a necklace. And that became an artwork of we're always losing. Things are always coming away from us that we can't control. And here it is a collection of the things that are even unseen. This is just a simple kind of metaphor of your hair falls out. You grow new hair. So there's growth and renewal and there's losing and there's loss. And it's just part of the process. And then the beauty of the product of that bit, with, around with your it, neck. Not, not beautiful for everybody, but the necklace goes like down to the floor. You know, it's mm. a very long necklace. And um, so that's just an example of like in, in, the, in the sort of madness of grief, one might be compelled to do something and they'll think, oh, I can't do that because that seems crazy. Well, if it's not hurting anything, go ahead and do it because it might inform you about something else. I think we live metaphors all the time. And if we use our intuition, that's sometimes the best source of being informed about something. And that necklace, actually, once I'd strung it together, I felt kind of powerful. I felt like I discovered a sense of myself always changing, always being renewed. It was very powerful, a very good message. Amazing. It is a well, it's a beautiful reminder. At number, you know, again, where are those whispers coming from? But to definitely listen to them. Yeah. At least consider not just down talking yourself, you know, and saying, well, that's that sounds crazy. That's Uh yeah, 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 beautiful. So if you I mean, if you look at my work, you'll see that throughout there are things that are you know, a little off or a little different than what the mainstream is saying about grief or death. And um, I'm trying to do that as gently as possible because I know that um, there's this culture of grief and death out there. Um, But I don't know that it's all inclusive and I don't know that it's always telling the truth. Um, And that we as our own animal, like yourself, who you are and who you are in the experience of something gets to tell your own truth about what grief is and what death is. And that's how I was able to um, gain some, not not recovery, but renewal, um, rebuilding the new self, new world. Tell us about, tell our listeners about the ashes. Oh, the ashes. Yes. Um, That was another kind of, um, boy, I'm, you know, could really get myself in trouble with doing this is, um, they had been sitting in a box for a while in my studio and I got real curious about them. It was around uh, the anniversary of his death and I brought them out and I dumped them out into a bowl and I was looking at them and kind of going through them and I sifted them. I just thought, I want to sift them and see what's left, what pieces of bones or what is this stuff? You know, it's supposed to be what he was at some point. It was just so abstract and weird and, Um, At some point, I pressed my hand in and I could see my fingerprints and it just chilled me to the bone. It was very strange. And then I photographed it. And in photographing, it did something weird with the shadow where it looked like my hand was coming out of his ash. And so I pressed my face into his ashes. And at the time that I had done that, too, my daughter had just got come home from I think she was coming home from school or walk or something. And she walked in and she's like, "Uh oh. But she knew I was an artist, so she walked over and actually asked me if I needed help, which was really beautiful because I was crying my head off and, you know, Aww. going through this really hard time. But the, the ashes became a material where I could, again, interact with, um, in an intuitive way, what is this? What do I do with it? How do I get it to talk to me? How can I bring him back is what I was thinking. And I knew that wasn't going to happen but I could bring myself back. And that's, I was sort of getting a, a sense of myself in his ash. And um, it, had, it had informed me that this is not, this is not light. This is, you know, uh, he's really gone. And here you are reflected in his ash. It's not, he's not coming back. Mm. 
It's just beautiful. Thank you. Stark and beautiful. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, dramatically painful and beautiful. Yeah. Um, that duality, you know, I think that's something your work really covers and your story really covers is things can be horrible and beautiful. Absolutely. That, that's my biggest message is that we can, we can extract, we're so busy focused on how awful and, and excruciating it is, but in that excruciating pain, there's an opening and that opening is like the, the I don't want to be abstract about this, but the opening is a, a vision of oneself, a vision of how to, how to be in this world, how to, it's an offering of how to show up, how to, however bad it is like that even makes me want to cry when I think about that, you know, that it is an opportunity to um, really stand up, even if you can't get up on your feet. Even if you can't get up on your feet. Yes. Well, tell us about. I love what you're doing now. I absolutely. In fact, I. I, I must uh, explore for myself. <laughs> <laughs> one of your beautiful, beautiful necklaces you're doing. Tell us about oh, those. Oh yeah. Um, I've been doing that from the beginning, working in clay because it's so visceral and. Um, I went to a workshop the first year my son had died um, with a woman who had also lost her son. And she was a um, sculptor and she offered workshops in uh, clay as a way of discovering yourself through clay. And I thought, I need to discover myself. I don't know where it is. So um, I need to do this. And one of the first exercises she gave us was to have a small ball of clay and you close your eyes and you form something. And, um, you know, there's some more little exercises before that to kind of warm you up. But I, I formed this little creature. And when I opened my eyes, it was this devastating face, you know, just this excruciating, soulless character. And it was like such a reflection of how I felt that I, I continued to make things. And I thought, you know, I, w I was afraid of it at first and embarrassed by it. And then I thought, why should I be? This is real. This is like this is what I feel like. This is what I look like. This is what grief is like. This is how it shows up. Um, so why not have advocates for grief that say, oh, yes, this is as bad as you think it is. <laughs> and we will stand with you and give you space. So I've been making woe beads that are about woes. And then I, I it was really great. I was invited to a show a few years later after my son died called talisman and my friend said your work would fit right in um do you have anything i said no but i'll make something so i made a hundred little woe beings and i hung them on threads and i put them on a wall and the wall had holes drilled in it so that you could roll up a little scroll that had your woe on it and you put you put right down your row, row woe on the scroll roll it up like a little prayer wall and stuff it in the hole and take one of the little talismans of woe as um, I called them agony, agony agents and woe agents. And they were free. So within an hour of the show, they were gone. And then I, I was delivered. They delivered the wall to me full of a hundred woes. They were unbelievable it was like the biggest gift I'd ever been given as an artist in making art is to hear what people had to go through there was one that I remember that it was written really tiny on both sides and then it was all scratched out and rolled up and put in it was fabulous yeah. you know and uh, people had said all I, all I really want to do is be able to wake up in the morning and feel okay or just you know all kinds of things from like I can't pay my rent I can't my kids were taken away from me, like all of these incredible things. And it's like within an hour, 100 people at a gallery show had done that. Mm. And I thought, wow, I'm going to do that again. <laughs> that is amazing. And, you know, it, it speaks to the if creating that space, opening up the space for these conversations. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, it's just incredible. Yeah. People are hungry for it. They but, are. yeah. You know, they're it seems that there needs to be a platform, you know, and I guess 
your work and my work, what we're trying to do is give a platform to practice, practice it here so that maybe it'll come off your tongue more easily Yes. Yes. in the next conversation. That's right. Practice it here so that you can, and it is a practice. It's absolutely a practice. Mm. Yeah. I have these other necklaces that I'm making that I put on the Instagram and um, they're more expensive, you know, but it's because of time and materials I, I need to kind of cover. But I'm going to be doing another, next year I'm going to do another 100 Woe Agents and put them out for in this in a similar way in a show or something so that they're available. I like that giving things out. I had another couple of pieces that I made and I put them in a thrift store. And I, two years later, um, a Jesuit priest um, notified me through email. He saw my name underneath the piece. And sent me a message. He goes, is this you? Is this your piece? I said, yes. And he said, I just gave this to my parents for their 30th anniversary. And um, <clears throat> they deal with grieving people. They're two psychologists. And um, so it was just so interesting that the work went out into the world, got rediscovered. In, and this was like in Los Angeles, uh, 300 miles away from me. And uh, he had discovered it and bought it at a thrift store somewhere else and gave it to his parents. Wow. That's so cool. So, so in some ways it's your, you know, grief, whatever word we want to call it, the loss, you know, it's like your losses out there creating beauty rather than living in your body. (laughs) That's nice. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, because it still is part of your work, right? Um, Yes, it is. Yeah. Your loss informs your work, yeah. to, or some of your work anyway, to well, a degree. Well, I think that most of my work has always been about that, even before my son died, um, okay. because of what I was going through through my childhood and so forth. But um, yeah, I think it's I'm still informed by that, but in a different way. I'm not processing my grief anymore, but I'm able to make work about grief, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, again, that duality when you were saying you know, as bad, but also beautiful. Absolutely. Your little so, woe beats. It's, and it's, I think works. it's really important in life to, to embrace both. It, and it really makes both, it makes beauty more beautiful. And I wouldn't say it makes death more horrible, but it makes it more interesting. <laughs> and real. And yeah. Real. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, but I think you're right. I think that's one of the keys to whatever we want to call it, healing, moving on, or, you know, assimilating it all is, is to be able to get to that space eventually where, you know, you're, you're seeing the beauty and around you and within maybe the process of, uh, the the loss or the yeah. or you know the memory of the person or yeah. whatever it's so yeah hard to it, describe because it starts to sound abstract you know it <laughs> does or prescriptive or or on the other hand prescriptive right 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 you, when you talk about these things yeah. and I think you and I are both coming from a place where you know we really want to stress how individual these processes it's and these so, experiences are so for everybody individual. yeah yeah. And I can be, yeah. I can, I can sometimes read my things and go, boy, that sounds prescriptive, but it's just like, but that's my truth. That's just the way it is for me. So, well, that's it. And yeah. that's what I think is important about this in these mm-hmm. conversations is, you know, I learn and I open and I widen from hearing your truth. Yes. It yes. doesn't mean it's my truth. Yeah. But when I hear your truth, it expands me and it, and it gives me little, um, little, roadways little streams into a different way of being or a different way of looking and which I think is which I I'm hoping is hopeful you know it's like it is encouraging encouraging or life affirming or like you'll get a self you know like I'm pretty sure that if you let yourself feel what you feel and go through what you go through that you'll come out the other end with with a pretty intact self you know Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe that's not true but it sure seems like it Absolutely. Well, Jane, I can't thank you enough for having this time with us today. And if you wouldn't mind, we'll put it on the episode description, but just very quickly for people, where can they find you? I'm at the Fine Art of Grieving. Yes. And you have, um, well, that that's your name on Instagram. Are yes. you on Facebook as well? I am on Facebook as the Fine Art of Grieving as well. 
awesome. And a website. Uh, yes. Uh-huh. And I also have, um, I'm there as Jane Edberg on Facebook and also Edberg Studio um, on Instagram. And come follow me. It'd be great. And I'll follow you. <laughs> Lovely. Well, thank you again. I, I appreciate feel, this I'm time, Jane. I'm totally honored. I really, really respect the work you're doing and just adore you, Becky. And thank you so much for everything you do. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> and I feel the same about you. All right. <laughs> Take you take good care. Bye-bye. Bye. We hope you've enjoyed your time with us today. We'd love for you to get further connected with our project. You can find the links in the podcast information. You can also find the Death Dialogues Project on Facebook, on Instagram, and at www.deathdialogues.net. Take a care and see you next time.